It's been more than 455 days since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which means nearly as much time has passed since the Russian authorities accelerated an already aggressive campaign to censor political speech online and control the internet in Russia, or the Runet as it's sometimes called. After February 24th, 2022, when many Western companies withdrew from Russia and the Russian state itself outlawed other platforms, like Meta, for instance, the Runet's future seemed uncertain. How would the Russian internet market develop? Where would the authorities turn for the technology they need to pursue digital sovereignty and more advanced censorship tools? Well, it's 2023 now. The Runet hasn't collapsed. Russia's biggest internet tech company, Yandex, posted almost $136 million in profits last year. And Russia's means of policing online speech are more hidden from the public than ever. At the same time, Yandex is carving itself up, selling off assets and moving entire divisions abroad to stay competitive internationally. And networks with a lot of content the Kremlin hardly welcomes, like YouTube and Telegram, are still available in Russia. So what's the state of the Runet and online free speech in Russia today? More than a year after Vladimir Putin's decision to go to war changed so much for his country and his people. That's the subject of today's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Today's show is another dive back into Russian internet censorship and online policing. I've done more than a few episodes on this subject. I, myself, am a thoroughly online person, so talking about platforms like Telegram and YouTube is near and dear to my heart. And also, these networks are particularly important in Russia, where the internet is the only public space left, where people can communicate even remotely anti-Kremlin anti-war views, and that space has, of course, narrowed enormously since February 2022. So the state of the Runet says a lot, I think, about the state of politics in Russia and the capacity for self-expression and self-organization. But before we get to this week's interviews and all that, here's a brief message from one of my colleagues. Spoiler alert, we're asking again for your support. Hello, this is Anna Razumne, one of Medusa's English side news editors, who bring you the daily breaking news and feature stories from Russia, as well as Ukraine, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. Although millions of our readers in both English and Russian live around the world, one of the key goals we're committed to is to continue providing accurate and uncensored information to our audience in Russia, where the state is daily ramping up its offensive on the independent press. This mission, of course, requires funding. And yet it has become dangerous for our readers in Russia to support Medusa. Vladimir Putin's regime has banned our publication, designating it an undesirable organization, which means that anyone who supports our work from within Russia risks facing criminal prosecution. But Vladimir Putin doesn't have to have the last word on whether Medusa gets to live or the Russian people's access to uncensored reporting. We would very much prefer this to be your decision. As a member of our international audience, you have a say in deciding the future. I'm talking about the future of the free Russian language press, about Medusa's future, but also about the future of Russian society, which depends on access to truthful information about the world. We ask you to contribute to sustaining our work at this important time, when this really does matter more than ever. If you like what we do, and if you believe in the importance of free media in a democratic society, please support us with your donation today. You can do this by following the Stand With Us link at the top of our website. And if you decide to donate to us today, we thank you 
from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of this show. Okay, let's get on with the show by welcoming back Dr. Marielle Weiermars, who's now a core fellow at the Helsinki Collegium for Advanced Studies at the University of Helsinki. Together with Fabian Burkhardt, she recently co-authored a paper in the SICE Review of International Affairs on how sanctions-induced disruptions are reshaping Russia's repressive capacities online. A few days before I spoke to Marielle, I noticed her tweeting about the Russian state's collaboration with certain prominent bloggers, albeit more the Instagram lifestyle sort than the grisly Telegram war correspondents that come more to mind today. What is the current state of the government's recruitment and mobilization of bloggers? I know there are still blogger councils around, but is this still like a meaningful thing? We hear a lot about Telegram and Z Telegram channels. At times, it seems like that's the only politically significant social network anymore. But what is the state of the government's work with bloggers right now? Yeah, so, so what you're asking about is a very murky area where we know nothing about. Oh, okay. So all that we know is very anecdotal. We do have evidence already for quite some time that there are coordinated disinformation and propaganda campaigns. Mm-hmm. We also know, and this has been quite well established, especially also by uh, Russian investigative journalists, that especially Telegram channels have been very successfully co-opted so that they are pretty much controlled by various factions, part of the Kremlin or aligned with the Kremlin. At the same time, we often do not know how exactly it works, especially if you move away from Telegram. So if you look at bloggers and vloggers, it can also be that people act on their own initiative. It can be that they think that there's some monetary gain, but we don't really know how this really works here in practice. It's a very difficult question to to start off with since we know so little. Mm -hmm. So elected officials, are they meeting with bloggers? I know that Putin's had meetings with some Z blogger people, and a lot was made of that, right? It was like, oh, this is now his brain trust. And some state Duma deputies have also convened like influencers from like Instagram, even though Instagram's technically part of a banned metaverse. Yeah, for quite some time, I think we're going back to 2017 or so, there was an interest from, from the state Duma, but also in general from Russian politicians to try and get a hold of all these things that were going on online. Mm-hmm. So they saw that online communities were very prominent. They saw the bloggers who have a very large following and were really trying to bind them to them. So it's like a form of cooptation, you could say. But at the same time, of course, the opposite is it might also be the case that they wanted to actually learn more about how does this online space really work? How should we also regulate it? So we saw some initiatives back in 2017, to, so partly from some of the parties, especially from LDPR, but also from the Duma itself to convene bloggers. And the funny thing at the time was that most of the prominent ones, they really did not want to be involved, obviously, because this is really tainting your image. And if you've built this large following, if you have millions of of followers on YouTube, then you do not want to do anything that might risk your reputation, of course. So they really tried, but it wasn't really successful. The interesting thing is, was that apparently in 2020, within the Federation Council, so there's the upper chamber of the parliament, they also created something like this. Officially, it is like an advisory committee. The organization itself, this group itself, they call themselves also a blogger council which is very, very inconvenient. But again, here, these are not very prominent persons, mostly mm-hmm. like yeah, beauty influencers. Right. And indeed, quite funny that they are like largely built their following on Instagram, and now Instagram has been blocked already. Mm-hmm. In terms of the meetings with the Telegram Z blogger people that Putin's had, and also the defense ministers met with them once or twice as well, 
I've also seen that, that it's possible that those telegram groups make up some part of Putin and maybe the military elites or the Siliviki elites, that that's part of their like information diet now is reading these telegram channels. That's how they're learning about the war. That's maybe something they even trust above official propaganda because they sort of give a grittier picture of things. In your view, do you see that as like a back and forth or like mutually influencing one another or is it more just one-way co-optation or, or something? Probably we see multiple processes at the same time. So of course, when something happens that is as prominent as the president inviting these representatives, that I think is a kind of power play. Mm -hmm. I would say it's kind of intimidation mm. to show that you are this prominent, but you then also have a certain kind of responsibility. I see. But indeed, I would say that these kind of the, the military bloggers, especially on Telegram, they have become a very important source for all sides yeah. in the war. Right. You could almost say like too many people are reading them and they're not always as critically as we should take them. I see this quite often on, on the side of Western commentators that they take these channels to be sources of really like unfiltered but quite reliable news, which I think forgoes the fact that indeed they have very strong political allegiances. And we know that there's a lot of coordination across those channels. So I think we should be very careful in, in how to, to manage the information that you get from there. For me, Instagram has been the most interesting case because when they imposed the restrictions, they actually demonstrated that they were aware of how popular Instagram was. So they did a pre-announcement saying that you should transfer all of your users right. and they fake age your premises within 48 hours. Uh -huh. But th these kind of things, it does mean that people use VPNs for different purposes. We have seen that the number of downloads for VPNs over the past year has been incredibly high. At the same time, Russia has also been blocking VPNs. Mm. They have been capable of doing that since, or at least that we know of, since 2021. So they are increasingly blocking VPN services. But at the moment, it's actually quite hard. You have to switch services all the time because mm. they might not actually work. So in that way, Russia is trying to limit the use of these kind of circumvention tools because officially VPN services, they can operate in Russia as long as they block access to prohibited websites. Yeah. The number of prohibited websites has increased massively as well over the past year. Right. And most of VPN services, they do not comply with this. Yeah. And that gives Russia ground to ban them as well, which they tried to do. And do you have any sense of whether Instagram has it, has it lost a ton of traffic from Russia? Do these bans... Are they very effective? Obviously, like the people that really want to use those networks are still managing to do it. I, I know that a lot of prominent Russian figures are still active on these banned networks. And technically, it's, it's my understanding that it's not illegal for an individual to be on those websites. There's some convoluted legality here, but you can't be charged with a crime for going on Instagram. Have those networks lost a ton of, of traffic from Russia? Are you aware? I do not know the exact numbers. But indeed, we see that various prominent figures are still actively using them. Just to give an example, uh, Dmitry Medvedev is still very active on Twitter, unfortunately for us. <laughs> uh, we also see the daughter of Peskov uh, very yeah. active on Instagram. You cannot be prosecuted for using them. Even Facebook and Instagram, which is the most contentious case because Meta was designated an extremist organization. So that's the one that people were most concerned about. That was because of their policy that they announced publicly, which was to allow specifically users in Ukraine, to make death threats against Russian soldiers. It was like in something along those lines, right? So it was a combination. So this and then the actual blocking that actually happened already before they were designated an extremist organization. 
So we're blocking uh, the channels of various Russian media. Right. And so it's a combination of censoring Russian media and then indeed allowing for threats to Russian citizens. I also spoke to Sarkis Darbinyan, the senior legal expert at Roskomsvoboda, an internet watchdog that's monitored the Runet since the early days of the Russian state's coordinated online censorship. Roskomsvoboda does essential work in the field, but I'll let Sarkis tell you what that entails. We monitor what the Russian authorities block, for what reason, and how they do it. We also protect digital rights of Russian internet users. We make litigation national and international, and we are developing different tools that help people to get access to the information and to protect them from the state surveillance. In terms of what Roskonsovoda is doing and the average Russian internet user, how many steps do you have to go through to get to the assistance that you're providing? Like, what are the like products or the projects, I guess? We are doing the plugin that is very popular in Russia. It's the plugin for the browser that allows you to bypass the censorship and it informs people when the site is in the registry of FSB and it can collect information about the user's activity. Of course, we are doing VPNs and we have our own VPN that we test it in Turkmenistan, and it's going to work even uh, when all of the VPNs are blocked, or maybe some of them, because we're expecting that maybe this year or the next year, a lot of VPNs will die in Russia because Roskomnadzor know how to block them up effectively. And another thing is our legal work. We are helping people who are being prosecuted for their opinion online, especially right now during the war in Ukraine for discreditation of Russian army or fake news, there are a lot of people coming and asking for our help. So we give them lawyers, we give them some guidelines what to do if something bad happens with you, if you are expressing your opinion online and trying to do what is prohibited right now in Russia. Russian censors are getting more and more clever for instance, what are they doing that makes them more clever? Like I've seen news reports about greater adoption of like DPI, deep packet inspection protocols, and right. more sites are using like IP geolocation. Like what are some of the things that the censors are doing? The Pandora books was opened in 2012 with the adoption of the law of the protection of children. From that time, how the website blocking worked, everything was done by the internet service providers. So they had to monitor the registry for Skumnadzor and then to decide how to block the website by IP, by URL, by domain. Then was adopting the law of sovereign internet in 2019 and the social media act in 2020. Now it is three staged filter system. The first filter is TESPU working on DPI technology, and now all ISPs are obliged to have it, and Roskomnadzor can set them up itself, so the operator itself does not know what is going on in its networks. This is how Twitter was throttled, the smart voting site from the Navalny team was blocked, the VPNs and many other things. Now it's a dark forest for us, 
we don't see it in the registry. No one knows exactly how they work and how Doros can absorb configure this equipment. The next filter is the social network filter. The social networks are obliged to clean up everything that was not cleaned up in the previous two filters. They have to monitor users' content, and if it violates Russian laws, they have to remove it, and they should contact with the Roskomnadzor, which will tell them what to do and what, what to delete from these networks. So I would say that uh, the sensor system becomes really smarter every year, and now we are also concentrated on what is happening uh, with artifactal intelligence technologies that Roskomnadzor started to use also in this censorship machine. What are some implications of AI in censorship? Do you, do you have any idea of where they'll take it? I mean, I know that you can use AI to do, you know, find lots of patterns in large data. So I imagine it would be helpful for locating certain kinds of speech that they want to identify and remove or persecute or whatever. Is that pretty much what's expected or is there some other application here? Well, this year, the authorities presented two systems. The one is called Fear and another is called Vapor. These two systems should be used to monitor Runet in automated mode for prohibiting information that is published by text or by videos. And of course, they also want to monitor streaming, TikTok, YouTube, whatever. For now, we don't understand how they are going to use this system because in one way it can be used to, you know, automatically add new and new websites for blocking. And it can also be used for making some kind of automatic administrative offense reports or, for example, sending red flags to the FSB and police for starting a criminal case against users. They don't tell us how they're going to use these systems, but we understand that the censorship can be much more automated than it is right now working in some kind of manual regime. I know that when it comes to social networks, the ones that are still based in Russia, like Contact and the Klasniki, others as well, like they're essentially forced under these three stages to very varying degrees to comply with censorship laws. What about the foreign networks? I know that they've blocked or they've declared, they've literally outlawed Meta, but are the Russian authorities still sending formal takedown requests to, like, to, well, to, to TikTok or something? Like, are they still? They're used to send them uh, fines. Yeah. To pay to the Russian budget. And right. they, of course, they don't do that. They don't do that. Well, Twitter is blocked. Facebook is blocked. Instagram is blocked. LinkedIn is mm -hmm. blocked. Google and YouTube is still not blocked. But I believe that it can be blocked till the end of the year. We understand that YouTube makes a lot of things that annoy Russian authorities. They're blocking some propaganda videos, propaganda channels. Why it's not blocked right now, I think it's because they don't understand how to block YouTube and don't block all Android devices because everything is working on a Google infrastructure. Mm. But I believe that China's colleagues are going to teach them how to separately block YouTube and not block all the Google services that are being used in, in Android.
you think they could even move again and try to block Telegram? Because it seems like Telegram is very important to the news media now. Not just news organizations have presence there, but you know, these like Vayani, Karspanjenji, and like all these little empires of like right. Simonyan controls these channels, Prigozhin controls these channels. You think they would still block it even with all the investments they've made there? No, it looks like Telegram is a good platform for them also because <laughs> the policy uh-huh. of Pavel Durov is like you, you can do anything on Telegram. But of course, it's not true because now we see a lot of channels are being blocked also in Russia and they make some kind of geo-blocking. Telegram also has another platform, as you know, it's called Fragment, and it lets people to buy anonymous phone number and anonymous nickname. And uh, Russian authorities don't like that because they want to know information about all of the users. But Telegram doesn't share that information with Kremlin. When we were talking about AI, you mentioned that one use for it could be that it'll flag certain kinds of content and then basically automatically push it along to the police or the FSB or something like that. In terms of what we know about how Raskom Nadzor and like other agencies, just police officers and so on, when it comes to like these cases against internet users for posting something or reposting something, what's usually the process for even finding these people? Because obviously it's the internet. There's millions of people writing things every second. Mostly all of these cases happen on Skontakte. Uh, and on the classic Russian social medias that provide all the information by any request from the law enforcement offices. They get this information, then they get information from internet service provider, and then people get a letter, or maybe officers come and they make a protocol, or sometimes they make much more harder things. It doesn't look like a kind of mass terror of people right now. But still, if you say something, uh, for example, against the war, you can expect that it will not be avoided and missed by the authorities. And mostly it comes to fines, not for the any kind of criminal prosecution. I would say that still there are not, not so many cases, maybe 200 uh, criminal cases. But of course, it makes people be scared and it makes the self-censorship very high right now because people are afraid to say anything on social medias and trying to avoid any discussion about uh, Ukraine, about the authorities, about the corruption. What about the deciphering certificates? That was the big thing when Telegram was blocked a few years ago, was that, oh, Telegram's not giving them the, like, code that they would need to decode it on the other end that was like the, the keys the keys yeah like i don't hear so much about the keys anymore is that still a thing are the regulators still demanding keys from websites and organizations yeah of course they do if the website or web service is added for the registry of disseminators of the information there is a separate registry for Oskomnazor, they are obliged to share all of the data of the user, metadata, all of his messages. They should store it for six months, and they, of course, should also provide the keys for encrypting the data. So does uh, Yandex, so does Kontakte, and many other services. But, uh, of course, not every service is going to share this data. 
We know that for now, WhatsApp, Telegram, and uh, a lot of messengers are still not doing that and they're not blocked in Russia. So it's a kind of political decision that comes from Kremlin, Mm. but not from Roskomnadzor itself. Regular listeners of this podcast might remember that last week I asked an expert in Russia's prison system what I thought was a simple question. How many people are locked up in Russia right now? Turns out that it's a lot more complicated than just counting. A lot goes into deciding how to count and where to count. One thing I cut from that interview was another question about how Russia's prison system compares to others around the world, namely in China and the United States, the countries with the two biggest inmate populations. Now, that level of comparison was even more fraught with problems, given the dangers of speaking in similar terms about systems where the words and concepts don't line up perfectly or much at all. I ran into the same issue when I asked Marielle Weiermars about global trends in online censorship. Comparing the way that different countries approach online censorship, it's very difficult to do because, of course, you have the language that they use, so how to justify imposition of restrictions, and you have the actual measures that they take and the impact that they have, and you still have just the general political context of it. If you, as a citizen, have, for example, the right to redress, so if there's any functioning legal system that you can resort to if your rights have been violated. So in that sense, indeed, I've always found it very interesting that Russia always made an effort to justify all of these restrictions that they put in place. Mm-hmm. So indeed, referring to international practices and saying, like, oh, we're only following this example. This is just good state performance. The state is actually protecting you. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, of course, if we view it independently, we can see that this is simply politically motivated censorship that is very repressive in nature. And in that sense, the kinds of practices that we see now are more similar to the attitude that China also has to its internet. So we need to to see the state having full responsibility and wanting to control what its citizens can and cannot do online, and also wanting to have full control over data of its citizens. Also shielding that data from foreign parties, saying that this is also a threat. Do you see evidence that Russian regulators or Russian politicians are actually looking to China for lessons? Like, are they visiting or are they buying the equipment or are they like, does China come up as a positive example specifically when it comes to internet censorship? In the public facing side, I would say that they do not necessarily want to be associated with China Hmm. because Russia for the past years has still tried to sell itself at least to citizens, like up until recently, right? Pre-war as a democratic state. And in that framework, it doesn't work to compare yourself with China. Mm. So what they were resorting to was indeed either comparing themselves with things like Germany or to say, well, in the US, it's much worse. So those are the two tactics. Both of them are comparing yourself to a democratic country. So to associate yourself with a state that has the interests of its citizens in mind. Mm -hmm. This doesn't mean that within the Russian state authorities, they're not looking at China because I think that they did. Yeah. And we also, of course, know that even Russia has also been exporting its own tactics. Up until recently, they were trying to expand, for example, Zber, but also various Yandex services, and also more in general on the governmental level to Central Asia. So we do see this, what we call authoritarian learning, mm-hmm. so that authoritarian states look at other states to try and learn how to best deal with the challenges that they have. Here you can also look at the example of so-called hostage-taking laws. So how do you control those nasty foreign social media platforms 
it turns out the best way is if you force them to have a local representative and then to prosecute the local representative. This is what they did in 2021 over the smart voting application by Alexei Navalny's Foundation Against Corruption. Uh, this is the exact tactic that they use to blackmail more or less Google and Apple into removing the app. And this is something that Turkey in the past has also tried. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.